Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, this is Maggie, and on this unfortunate episode, we are doing the 72nd Best Picture winner, American Beauty. So American Beauty is, I saw a black comedy drama, and I, I'm i going to kind of disagree with the comedy bit. I There were like maybe a couple lines that I thought were funny, but like in general. Well, it's like a lot of many of these scenes, not many, a handful of these scenes in a vacuum are funny. The unfortunate reality is they exist in the context of what is otherwise not a good Meh. movie. <laughs> I would agree. I yeah, up, up front, we did not really enjoy this one. Um, so I guess if if you're really passionate about this movie, this might not be the episode for you. Um, or you can just like debate us as you listen in your car. I don't know. Uh, it was directed by Sam Mendes. It was his directorial debut. Um, I think he had done some television before that, but I I this feels like a debut. It uh, And not one of the stronger debuts we've seen from debut Best Picture winners. I just, I feel so mean, but also I just, I had to sit through two hours of a film that felt like four, so... This is the unfortunate part of having a podcast where we could critique stuff. Like, I do feel bad sometimes when I am critiquing someone's work and I don't like it, but... Also, well, Sam Mendes definitely doesn't listen to this podcast, so I'm sure he's fine. Yeah, do our opinions matter to him? I honestly hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope not, too. Um, it was written by Alan Ball, who I think this is the first thing I've seen written by him, but I know you actually like a lot of his other work. I do, because, you know, he did things, um, oh, what was it, Six Feet Under, True Blood, like these really great, immersive tv dramas like oh he did true blood yeah i have seen another thing of his and oof <laughs> I, it's it it also is dated but it is much less cringy in my mind even going back and i watched the first couple episodes somewhat recently um but like six feet under is legitimately great like great yeah was this i don't know if you know was this early on in his like writing um, it is, I think, the earliest notable work on his Wikipedia. So I think so. Okay. Okay. Then I I can see that because I think we both agree that like this movie tried to tackle a lot of, I'll be honest, a lot of themes that a lot of movies and a lot of Best Picture winners try to tackle. Um, but it definitely tried to do too many at once. And then therefore, it tried to say too much and then therefore said nothing. Yeah. It stars Kevin Spacey as a creepy middle-aged man obsessed with his daughter's best friend, played by Mina Suvari. I actually thought Mina Suvari was like, her performance was one of the bright spots for me. Her mm -hmm. and Annette Benning because they were, were the only performances that had any energy and life to them. Well, and any, in my opinion, like onioning, like there were layers to them which I can't believe I just made that a verb, but that's fine. It's they, they had a more complete subconscious thought that you could see in my mind. Well, with Angela, I did a lot of like extrapolating from what we saw with her, but I actually wanted to know more about her because I was like, there's clearly something going on with her and someone needs to check in on her. So much, so much. Um, it also stars, as we mentioned, Annette Benning, and then Thora Birch plays uh, the daughter. Um, Angela's friend. 
Overall, I did like Thora Birch as well. I think she her her character was very thinly written, which is, I think, where the issues lie. Her character was the one I felt for the most because she well, when she's a child in a bad situation, like she seemed to have the least agency of anyone and was like the one that most things were just like happening to. Um, I will say, I, I think you and I talked about this before we started recording. There are a lot of very talented actors in this film, but we did not like a lot of the performances. And I don't think it's because the actors are bad actors. I think a lot of it comes down to the writing and the directing, which I understand when we talk more about it, we'll get into it. And I understand the thought processes around some of the decisions. I just don't think they landed. It's yes. Yes. hundred percent. So awards and nominations, uh, Sam Mendes wins for best director. <laughs> Kevin Spacey wins for best actor. And I definitely think part of the critique of this film, especially because at the time it was very well received. And then subsequently it has become kind of one of the Oscar winners that people are like, why did that win? And I do think a lot of it is tied to allegations against Spacey and like his kind of public persona downfall as well um while i agree i think this film needed no help from those allegations to be panned i'm gonna agree i don't (laughs) i don't think the film is good on its own but it is definitely like those allegations are in the back of your mind with this character well and isn't it so salient given the themes and the midlife crisis creepiness of his character yeah it's because the character like mimics yeah that's why um i will say though somehow lester was not the character that disturbed me the most still disturbed me but for some somehow somehow there was a character i found creepier and we will talk about it um annette benning is nominated for best actress i think it was best actress and not supporting yes nominated for best actress um loses out to hillary swank in boys don't cry again her performance was one of the bright spots for me because it actually had energy granted sometimes that energy was unhinged but you know what i would prefer unhinged energy to no energy well and in a film like this that is purportedly dissecting how the american dream and suburbia drives people to insanity like i accept some unhinged energy in that performance like agreed again her trying to sell that house and the breakdown after like actually yes. a fan- oh, fantastic set we'll talk about that scene so. we'll talk about that <laughs> um i also loved those scenes um it alan ball wins for best original screenplay um it wins for best cinematography conrad hall nominated for best editing and then thomas newman's score is nominated for best original score um and i the score is great i am such a thomas newman stan so i i love his stuff and i loved this score in a vacuum i felt very strongly that we ran into a chariots of fire situation where it it, didn't didn't mesh with the themes and what i was seeing on screen like now maybe that was a deliberate choice to be like super contrasty and like pull you out of the moment into these fantasies that we see. But I just. Oh, see, I loved what the score did with the fantasies um, because we'll, we'll talk more about it when we get to watch notes, but I actually really liked what he did with the score when it hit the like fantasy sections um, of those nominations and wins. Guess which one made me the most angry. 
I don't know, Maggie, which one? You haven't told me yet. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't discuss this previously. We weren't texting about it as we were both watching this movie. Um, It's the best original screenplay because it beats out The Sixth Sense, which we've actually done a special episode on. Highly would recommend listening to that. We did it for one of our Halloween episodes. Mike from Cinemas guested. Um, The script for Sixth Sense has to be so tight and like pretty much perfect in order for that movie to work. And compared to like the script for American Beauty, like I like there was so much bad dialogue and I know that it likely was a choice in order to highlight the mon- the mundane everyday life for these characters and stuff, but I was like no one talks like this. No one. Especially not teenagers. Uh, yes, like specific, the specifically was bad. that scene at near the end where they're talking about fucking Lester or not. I'm like, this is the most stilted writing I have seen in yeah. a Best Picture in a long time. Even the opening voiceover, I was like, this is bad. <laughs> like this writing's bad. Um, and the delivery was also so deadpan, and I didn't like it even though like I know it was intentionally deadpan but it just didn't work for me um other nominees from that year so we had the cider house rules which I have seen um and I I haven't seen it in a while but I remember really enjoying the film um it's adapted from a John Irving book that I really like um it deals with a lot of like really rough themes and everything but I think does so a lot more effectively and the writing's a lot prettier uh, the Green Mile, which I haven't seen, but I know is always up there for like great films. Well, and that's a Stephen King adaptation, right? Yeah, it is. So like I, oh yeah, it's like Tom, Tom Hanks is in it too. Yeah, I. Um, the Insider, which I am not familiar with. And then of course, The Sixth Sense, which, you know, of the ones that I've seen, I've seen three of these five and of those like to me Sixth Sense is the one that gets it because it's like so different it does it pulls off a twist very effectively even though I know a lot of people now are like oh but you know the twist and it's like yeah but like remember when it came out no one knew the twist and it's super effective and and can I just like tell on myself for a minute if you didn't listen to the Sixth Sense episode somehow somehow I managed to not have that movie spoiled for me before watching it for the podcast and I was floored it's so good. And like the performances are better, the writing's better. Like, yeah, I I I I really just don't understand how American Beauty ends up beating out Sixth Sense um on a lot of these nominations actually. Well, let's get into why we think that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Happily. I, I assume it's not on any like AFI lists. No, I think like one of the quotes got nominated for AFI's best quotes. And I was like, sit the fuck down. (laughs) So as uh, Maggie has talked about, uh, the opening kind of found footage-esque dialogue from the daughter. Just like talking about how it's like, oh, do you want me to kill your father because he's a creep? And I'm like, I... (sighs) My very first note is this opening is so try hard. It is. 
It is. And then we get this like deadpan voiceover from Kevin Spacey about his life in the suburbs, which like on one I, hand, I know he was directed to read it. So deadpan, like I know that the whole point is that Lester's desensitized and like that explains his performance for like the first half of the movie. But like, it's so boring to watch. It's again, one of those things where I, if that, significantly added to my interpretation and feeling coming out of this film, I would feel differently. But there's a point at which like dead inside doesn't mean deadpan. Like, Agreed. Like, <laughs> and there's just like, oh, like that opening monologue with the voiceover. And I, I read somewhere that they were like, oh, it's supposed to be a nod to Sunset Boulevard. And I was like, do not bring the perfection that is Sunset Boulevard into this. I know that it's like opening monologue by a dead character, but like, I'm sorry, the shot of Joe floating in the pool as the monologue starts in Sunset Boulevard. So much better. Speaking of films that talk about like aging and sexuality and feeling like you're losing relevance, like that's how it's done. Yeah. Not this. And I, I will say like getting, I felt that the sets were pretty, decent at hammering home that kind of mundaneity because we very quickly get some scenes of Kevin Spacey's character Lester in his workplace doing mind-numbingly boring work and honestly the conversation between him and his new boss I actually liked the way that that was kind of filmed and delivered the only reason I say that is it's very like horror-esque like you were trapped in this like workplace hell almost but that was again like a bright spot of that whole interaction for me well and i think that there is something like the themes of like the mind-numbingness of corporate america are not something that we have issue with those themes like i i find that very interesting it's just like this was that was just a small piece of this film along with like a million other things and so they don't really like go into it and they also don't tackle it in a nuanced way you want to know what film that came out the exact same year does a much better job of tackling corporate america office space and see speaking of real comedy (laughs) well and i mean that movie also just has a much more focused lens right Mm -hmm. like it's not trying to do a million things at once um But like, again, like that's one of those scenes where I'm like, on its own, if it was in a movie about that, like where that was the major theme, it works. But like all of it together does not work. Yeah. Because, you know, in addition to that, we get this like tense dinner time something or other where it's very clear that we're supposed to, as you've said, seeing how like beaten down and desensitized Lester is to his entire existence. And then we get a, what I would argue, fairly misogynistic portrayal of his wife, where she is the stereotype of like the controlling, you know, wife that has his dick in a mason jar under the counter, as he says. Like, yeah, it's such a tired trope. The misogyny is rampant. Well, there's also the bit in the voiceover where he's like, yeah, that's my wife. Like the handles of her gardening shears match her shoes. That's not an accident. And I'm like, let the woman color coordinate her shoes and her garden accessories. Like, why does that have to bother you? Yeah. If she needs to cope with the mundaneity of being married to you and that is how she does it, so be it. (laughs) Well, and she's, I want to, I want to say like, Carolyn's not 
innocent in all this. Carolyn oh, no. also makes some really shitty choices. Um, I just, honestly, with both of their, both Carolyn and Lester, I was like, can you guys just not be adults and like keep it together for like another year or two until your daughter moves out of the house? Like you have a fucking kid. Or even just separate. Like, right. Anyway, it's, they just, uh, I, I struggle with that so hard because I think what I was seeing in the film is it was tempting us to let Lester off scot-free. Yes. When yeah. his situation was no fault of his own. It is the characters around him who have made his life this like living hell. And his reaction to true. that is just <laughs> absolutely not true. Absolutely not. I, and I mean, yeah, I there were there are moments and we'll get to them where like there's a certain moment where I was like, this movie wants me to stand up and cheer for Lester and I refuse. Oh, absolutely. No, I don't like him. I he handles things poorly. I mean, most everyone in this film handles everything poorly. But like he is not a good protagonist to follow. He's not an interesting protagonist to follow. Like I. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we get a, a little bit of introduction to him. I, I think the introduction to Annette Benning's character is better. Uh, so much better. So we we know that she's a real estate agent and she is working that hustle or she's hustling. I don't know. Anyway, to sell this shithole of a house. And you see her in these cuts and scenes, cleaning it, vacuuming, repeating, I will sell this house today. And you get to see another beautifully constructed montage. Like this was a real bright spot for me in this film of her interacting with the people coming to this open house and putting lipstick on this pig. I, my favorite bit was the woman who was like, when they were talking about the pool and there's a lady who's like, the listing said it's lagoon. Like when I think of lagoons, I think waterfalls and the tropics, this is just a hole in the ground. And I was like, yes, ma'am, that is the definition of a pool. <laughs> Well, and it the fact they're like, the where are the plants? And she motions behind her, Annette Benning does, and like, what are these? <laughs> but plants. You could plant things. Like, I don't, the, the last couple she was trying to sell the house, I was, I was like, these people are the worst. Well, and see, this is where, why I am so unforgiving about the rest of the characters, because we get this immediate sense and feel for how depressing Annette's character's like existence is and like very clear reasons why like the juxtaposition of her with the king of real estate and how he is so successful and she's trying to hustle and work and doing everything she can but still not making it like that level of kind of oppressive feeling you really feel and it's hammered home in the end of that scene where she just breaks down in the middle of the living room and like genuinely I feel for the, her situation love that well it's that and then coupled with her like then yelling at herself for having a breakdown and i was like this is great like again you get the the real sense of like how tortured this character is and i was just like would have loved some of something similar to that for Lester. Like I want to, I want to understand more of like just how badly this is eating at him. And I get it that they're two different people and they're coping in slightly different ways, but like <laughs> very different ways. <laughs> well, both one is of them destructive have for everybody. Or fantasize <laughs> about having an affair. So yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but but again, yeah, I just I wanted to see. I wanted to see more from Lester. Like, 
Yeah, more than the next scene with the basketball game. So, God, this scene was torture. It was horrible. So their daughter, it, it is kind of interesting that they are trying to play on the trope of the distant daughter-parent relationship, where like you get some dialogue between Jane and her friend Audrey that like she doesn't really want her parents there, but they're coming anyway to do this like performative. I support. felt like they were blaming Jane for all of this shit and I was like later in the film absolutely absolutely but it's also one of those scenes where it's like again she's a child like she's not you chose to have a child well and the adults should have more emotional intelligence than the child um but like it's like oh look at this teenager who like doesn't want her parents there but like they're trying but it's also like I don't know parents if your teenage daughter's like I don't want you to come see me dance during the halftime show like I, like, I don't know, like, listen to your kid? Well, and that that coupled with this line that uh, Lester had earlier about, like, you don't always have to wait for me to come to you. Like, I just, this is just such a dysfunctional relationship. And I, I like, yeah. to some extent, the broad strokes of that relationship are fine. Agreed. But it's like, there needed to be more nuance there. And I felt like it just blamed Jane a lot. And I was like, you can't blame the kid. Yeah. Yeah. Like clearly something has happened that for her to be so distant from them, I think. And I, I know, I feel like this movie is like, it's just teenagers being teenagers. And it's like, no, but it's not. It's like Jane, Angela and Ricky are all clearly going through stuff that like has to do with something that has happened to them. So what is it? <laughs> and, and like the way people treat them and I feel like they're all blamed for it. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, I, I I, didn't like that. And I, and you do definitely get the sense that like Lester's there because Carolyn's making him go. And then Carolyn is there because she's like, this is what you do. This is how you put on the show of the happy family. Because I think she doesn't know how to make the family happy. She just knows how to pretend that they're happy and then hope that that makes them happy. And then also Lester, if you have this bad of an attitude about going to see your daughter's game, like no wonder she doesn't fucking want you there. Yeah. Let alone how you immediately fantasize about her friend. Immediately are so creepy. I do want to talk about the score here. This dream sequence was like really long too, like the fantasy sequence. And I was like, we get it. We get it. Let's please stop. This is so awkward and I hate it. Um, But I do like what the score does here. And how every time it goes into one of Lester's fantasies, the music becomes kind of discordant and disjointed and weird. Like it, it feels, the score feels off when it's happening. And I like that because this middle-aged man should not be fantasizing about his teenage daughter's best friend. (laughs) Yeah, I can accept that. I know, I know, I think you disagree on this point. It worked for me because it reinforced how creepy it was. It's in in the dream sequences, I I did like the effect there. I think it's more the portions of the film where we were expected to have like some emotional significance. The the music was trying, but mm. we hadn't gotten there with the characters and the development of their backgrounds to have that match well. I will fully support that because my favorite bit for the score was the way it would change for the uh fantasy sequences and then you and i had also talked about this where like i wish they had done more to visually set off the fantasy sequences like there's a little bit of magical realism 
But what I really wish they had done is like upped the brightness of the color palette Mm -hmm. and warmed it up so that it had like more of a visual contrast to the everyday sequences and gave off this feeling of like the fantasies are this warm, welcoming place for Lester versus like the coldness of the everyday life. Like I think that would have been a little bit more effective and more interesting visually because I'm not going to lie. I was disappointed in the visuals because I had big expectations for them because I had seen like the poster and then everyone's seen the shot of like the rose petals in the bath. And like, that's kind of the one like really pretty shot. And like, there really aren't a lot of others in the film. Like I expected more. Yeah. And I think they really to to your mention of the rose petals, they did try to do that. And you'd like see that come in where Carolyn is tending the roses and is the gatekeeper to the roses and has them neatly on the dining table. Like I, I, I will, interpreted as trying to make some comment of control and whereas you have this unbridled quote-unquote passion which is just i don't know it's so hollow when it does come through uh with the petals but like i i agree with you there because even though you do have those there you have this really stark contrasty almost made for tv like it's not i don't know i was not a fan of the cinematography I, yeah, I, it, I didn't hate it. I just wanted more from it. And like you, like you said, like there's a sequence with Lester lying in bed and you've got like the rose petals on the ceiling with like Angela buried in them and they're like falling and like the petals in that are pretty vibrant. But I was like, I want the whole, like, I want everything to warm up and be more vibrant when it comes to like the fantasy sequences. Like I just, if it felt like it would have set things apart more and just would have been more interesting visually. Cause like. I was bored for a lot of this. <laughs> and I will say too, I think this general setup, I just take a really strong issue. I have a lot of issues with the fact that it is literally her teenage friend. And I think we've talked I about mean, this yes. before where... <laughs> yes, that is wrong. <laughs> like, if we f- age people up, give characters agency, like not... Uh, have them be a caricature of a beaten down teenager looking for approval in all the wrong places. Like that is the extent of Audrey's character in my mind is it's, it's literally she's hungry for why am I calling her Audrey? Angela. Jesus. Cause it's a weird name for a teenager. (laughs) That's why. Um, No, I, I agree. Every character in this is like more caricature than character. Like it mm -hmm. feels like there's a, real heavy reliance on tropes without any subversion or nuance. And it just makes for uninteresting viewing. Agreed. And you see the way that Kevin Spacey acts in these scenes with Angela. Like he is literally that cartoon, like Aruga, like the eyes popping out of the head. Like it is that cartoonish to me. And that lack of subtlety just, I don't know. It, no, the movie, there's no subtlety with anything. Like, I, and again, I feel like Mina Suvari, like, is doing kind of the most with Angela as far as, like, bringing some sort of energy to it. And then, you know, later you start to see, like, a little bit of, you know, Angela or a lot of Angela's just, like, put on and an act. Mm-hmm. But again, I was like, I want to know a little bit more about her. Like, it, 
Well, and you get hints of that because kind of in the same sequence, she does talk about how she is used to being objectified and stared at and all of this. It's like she said, it all started when I was 12. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is about to try and delve into some like really heavy themes about the sexualization of children and women in particular. And then it goes nowhere. Yeah. Like, again, like it's scratching a lot of stuff on the surface, but it's not really diving into anything And like you have that and then you also have this kind of interesting dynamic with because of Ricky's interest in Jane, you can see that there is like a little bit of jealousy from Angela as, you know, being used to being like the center of attention, being used to the one to being the one who's sexualized and then feeling like some sort of jealousy that like Jane's getting this male attention now and she's not getting any, which is an interesting dynamic to explore. But then like there doesn't seem to be any nuance to it and instead I feel like the film just tries to paint Angela as like a bitch and like there's the scene at the end where Ricky and which we need to talk about Ricky in a second oh that's exactly where I was going next (laughs) we gotta talk about this but where Ricky shows up at the end and is like Jane run away with me to New York and Angela's like hold the fucking phone this guy's a creep you don't really know him you cannot run away with him you're a child and it's like is Angela a good friend no is Angela completely right in that moment absolutely and like I loved that break of her being like like no this is wrong like you can't do this that's a bad idea and I was like I loved that moment, but it came like so late in the film. Mm -hmm. It's you got this glimpse of, and I mean, even in the scenes with her and Kevin Spacey toward the end, you do get this glimpse of her as a real person and like some vulnerability. Yeah, I have a big issue with the bit at the end though, but I'm going to save it because I think we should like, we'll we'll get to that whole scene, but we're a little all over the place, but like, I'll be fully honest. Chronology doesn't matter in this movie. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, let's talk about Ricky. They get out of the car after having that discussion about Angela's. This is the character that I was like, how is this character somehow more disturbing than Lester? Well, and what's really interesting, Wes Bentley, who played Ricky, I know him more from, um, I'm pretty sure he was in, oh, what was it? The um, American Horror Story? Yes, he was. And so that is where I am most familiar with his work. And that is also creepy. (laughs) I mean, he's good at playing creepy. Like He he is. But But this character is literally filming them walk up to the house with a camcorder. He films everything and is really creepy and is asked multiple times to not film people. Jane tells him, stop filming me. He doesn't. Also, Jane, report this to an adult. Maybe get a police report on the record. I just, it would be good in case you disappear under suspicious circumstances. I, like, I, and Ricky obviously has a terrible home life. Oh, yeah. Like, his father, his father is physically and verbally abusive. We'll talk about the father in a second. But, like... I had trouble fully sympathizing with Ricky because the whole time I was like, this this kid's a future serial killer. Like, he's walking red flags. He, again, filming everyone, even when explicitly told not to. Like He's playing a voyeur in, like, many different scenes. The whole bit where he, like, takes Jane into, I guess it's, like, the dad's man cave, which I just want to say, if there is a room in your house that you are, quote, not allowed into, 
ask some questions. That's not good. I I think that's more of a commentary on what we're supposed to believe his dad, Colonel Frank Fitz, is as a person. I know. Agreed. I know. But like, <laughs> that's not good. Um, but takes her in there and you see like the dad's gun collection and then he wants to show her the plate the that was plate. like Yeah, and I was like, Jane, run. What the fuck are you doing? Like all of all of this is a red flag, not to mention the general creepy demeanor, but mm-hmm. like I mean, I think it's supposed to be kind of a commentary on like how starved Jane is for any sort of attention, especially when she has a friend who is used to getting all the attention. But it's like, I just don't, this is not the attention you want. No. And and, and I I think like he, Ricky's so needlessly creepy. Like the character didn't have to be this way. I think I texted you and I was like, why is every man in this movie, with the exception of the gyms, we love the gyms. The gyms are a delight. I wish they had been in there more. They're there for like two scenes and I love them and I wanted a movie just all about them. But like, other than the gyms, why are all the men in this movie so terrible? And like, they don't have to be. <laughs> they really don't. And that, I mean, that gets into the characterization of the Fitz family in general. Like, yeah. And I would have, uh, Ricky would have been so much more sympathetic if he wasn't such a creeper and also wasn't such like an artistic try hard with his, like, this is a 15 minute film of a paper bag. And like, isn't it beautiful? And the world is filled with such beauty. And I was like, okay. And this okay, is first more of a commentary on the people that made the film than on Ricky, because it's supposed to be like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I'm like, fuck that. We are trying to juxtapose a teenage girl and a paper bag. And that is but how Ian, you're investigating Ian, the concept of beauty. Like, stop. Ian, do you ever feel like a paper bag? Floating through the wind. Wanting to start again. I just, you know, all the time, Maggie. But at least I'm beautiful to read. That was the hardest I laughed in this movie. And it was because I made myself laugh when I thought, thought of that. Thank you, Katy Perry, for that comedic relief. Um, Thank you. <laughs> But what no, if she I, came out and was like, yes, my song Firework is inspired by the 1999 burn it, movie burn American all of it, Beauty? Burn it. Get rid of the master. No. <laughs> Honestly, I think that would be hilarious. It actually would. But. She's like, she's like, hated the movie, but that one scene with the paper bag, I was like, yeah, that gets me. Yeah. Uh. I just, it felt like, so, like, I was like, oh, Ricky's not like other boys. Like, pretty much. He's artistic. Actually, he's not, he's got. Ricky needs some therapy. Uh, literally everyone in this movie needs therapy, Maggie, except maybe the gyms, but we didn't see them enough to understand. They're probably fucked up in their own way. Let's be real. Yeah, but I'm going to believe in the gyms because they, if they are fucked up, they didn't make it everyone else's problem, including the audience. Correct. So anyway, let's talk about Colonel Fitz for a hot second. So we very quickly realize uh, as he is driving his son to school that he is Verbally abusive, emotionally abusive. That actor just plays kind of mean dads a lot, but he's very good at it. He is Chris Cooper. He's like, the dad in October Sky, too. Yeah. But, okay, can we talk... Speaking of another movie, and also, when did that come out? Um, October Sky? Also 1999. And a better film than this. And if you want to talk about like looking at a fraught parent-child relationship, that movie's so good. Because, like, the relationship between the dad and I forget the name of the character, but it's the kid played by Jake Gyllenhaal. But it is, like, there's a very contentious relationship between the two of them. The dad has, like, 
very old school ideas of like manhood and everything, but also like there's clearly love there too. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I, again, that's a better movie. Well, and it's, you get this very heavy handed homophobia from him very early on in the film. But the, the thing that really kills me is how flat Again, be more obvious with where you're going with this. Like, it was such a caricature. And the thing is, as far as I know, Alan Ball is a gay man, right? Like, the writer of this film. And I'm kind of like, how, how did you think it was, like, a good characterization or an interesting characterization to have, like, a self-destructive... Like, this is a trope that has been done before. It feels inexperienced. Like, it feels like an inexperienced writer yeah at that point like it like you know what i mean like it feels like he's probably wanting to delve into like themes that like maybe he has experience with or he's seen you know people he knows struggle with but it just doesn't but it it is it's like relying on this like trope that we've seen before and that's very tired i feel like a lot of the tropes that this movie relies on are like very tired yes it doesn't feel like a 90s film it feels like like a 60s film and I just, 70s film. that's the thing, like the, the Colonel characterization. And I mean, you get it when the gyms come over and try and be friendly and I, give them a gift okay, basket. But I loved that scene. It was and funny. It like your partners in what, what do you do? <laughs> well, I'm a tax attorney and he does this. I, but I want to talk about the editing there because like, again, this was, I, this felt very overdone because it immediately cuts from that to like him in the car with his son. He's like throwing around homophobic slurs and being like the bit that got me is when he was like they have to rub it in your face and I was like dude you asked like you were the one who started harping on the partner bit they welcomed you to the neighborhood and introduced themselves like and Ricky tried to push back on that like I I appreciated that but then immediately folded because of the abusive and like completely disrespectful relationship between the two well yeah which and I just the character of Ricky, if he hadn't been such a goddamn creeper, like I would have felt so much more for him, but I feel like I could only feel so much for him because he was so dead eyed and I was honestly a little afraid of him. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you had a sense of like a feral insanity behind those eyes and I, yeah, it was not, not good. I think it would have been interesting if Ricky was like more sociable and charming as a way to like, kind of like a foil to Carolyn, right? With like the idea of acting that everything's fine to mask it. I think that would have been very interesting. Okay, so I guess we should probably talk about the scene that seems to bring together all of the moving pieces. And that's the like real estate like thing. Okay, yeah, we're we're jumping back in chronology. Let's talk about this and let's talk about the devolution of Lester and Carolyn's relationship. The further devolution. So Carolyn, of course, is in the hustle trying to make her real estate career work, goes to this industry like social event thing. Which I just want to point out, there's a bit later where he's like, I supported you in getting your license. I want to talk about that speech, his I've treated you well speech. Oh, my God. Like, fuck, right on off. But he's like, I supported you in getting your license. And it's like, yeah, but every time, but like, you are such a drag every time she needs you to actually like be there and be emotionally present at the event. And I get it. Like work events are not fun, but like if you uh, either you need to set a standard of I'm not going to go or like be present when you go. I just, we all have to do things we don't want to do. It's part of being an adult. 
Grow up, Lester. And this is, again, going back to the, like, I get the impression that we're supposed to want to root for Lester, but in this scene in particular, he's acting like such a petulant asshole where it's instead of, he's like deliberately misinterpreting the fact that his wife has asked him to, like you said, be emotionally present and help her at the very least put on the facade that is important to grow her career. And I understand that that may not be what he wants to do, but he doesn't have to go to the extreme of like, I'll be whatever you want to be. And you know, you saw it in um, her rival's eyes. Um, it was uh, Buddy Kane um, is the name of the character p- played by Peter Gallagher. The real estate king. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, that was weird. Is <laughs> kind of how I interpreted his his view of that. And um, once again, like we've all had to do shit we don't want to do connected to either our jobs or a partner's job. Like, fucking deal. But this does bring together Ricky and Lester. And we they go out back and smoke a joint together. And... I think it says so much about Lester's character that this is the moment that kind of pushes him over the edge to regress into his teenage years. I also just want to like point out when Ricky's like, oh yeah, I like know your daughter and everything. Like Lester never asks any questions. Like he's so mad that his daughter doesn't want to hang out with him, but he never asks questions or follow-up questions. There's a bit at the end where Angela says, um, he well, he finally asks. He doesn't ask his daughter. He asks Angela how Jane is doing. And then Angela's like, she thinks she's in love. And Lester's just like, good for her, but doesn't ask any follow-up questions. And I was also like, Angela, you're leaving out a lot of information. Like, maybe you should have been like, she thinks she's in love with the creepy kid from across the street who's been filming her and everyone else. And also, I think they're about to run away to New York, so you might want to do that. And also call CPS because that kid's dad beat him up. Like, there was a lot of information <laughs> that should have been shared. 100%. But it's where that is in an alternate universe where this actually went well for people involved. Um, but following the scene, like we do get that you the scene where you mentioned talking about throwing the supporting uh, Carolyn through her license does come up because he is masturbating in bed and she's like what the fuck are you doing and i'm kind of like you know if she doesn't want to be part of this you should maybe not make her part of this um (laughs) just common courtesy here and so this is where he that and then also she asks like she has like no idea what masturbation is which is also just it's fine but it, it again goes back to the fact that like this lack of intimacy between you two of a physical sense is a larger manifestation of the devolution of your relationship and you acting like you won this conversation. Cause you see how he like smiles happily to himself and is like, Ooh, I can still surprise myself at the end. Like this is, I hate him. I hate him. Well, and his whole argument is he's like, well, I don't cheat on you. I've never hit you. Like it's, that doesn't make you a good husband. It's such like an old school understand, like, it feels like an 1800s understanding of marriage, right? Like that, yeah, that doesn't make you a good husband. Like you you basically did the bare minimum and just like didn't abuse someone or cheat on them. And therefore you're like, I'm good at this. No, like you're, you still, again, we talked about what an absolute drag you are on like trying to help 
with her career when like clearly she's the only one of the two of you who cares about her career so she like she has the potential to be the breadwinner also if you help her with your career then maybe you can quit your job and then you get to be stay-at-home dad i all i'm saying uh, i bet anyway. the gyms support each other they i bet they're I mean, the they life don't of have every to. it's party. a tax attorney and an anesthesiologist they're fine they're loaded are you kidding <laughs> no i mean i bet they go to each other's work events and are delightful and charm people um so kind of interspersed with this angela has come over to st- stay the night there was this really creepy fucking interaction between lester and her she plays into it somehow which i i didn't like this characterization of angela I, it felt so weird this early that she's playing into it. And then this was a bit where like, this is before we realized that like so much of what Angela is putting on about like her sexual experience is a facade. Um, but like, yeah, it was really weird that she played into it. I, the bit at the end where she like, you know, like actually propositions him, I understood a little bit more cause she just had the fight with, Jane and so it seemed like she was like oh I was joking earlier but now I'm going to like actually act on the threat of I'm gonna fuck your dad yeah uh but I agreed early on it was like I I just have a note that I'm like there's no fucking way Angela has, has any interest in Lester none and I mean it's her offhand comments yeah and I think you can interpret it as like her just trying to get at Jane because there's still a little bit of jealousy that like Jane got some attention that Angela didn't mm-hmm. but I still it it felt so th- this whole movie honestly felt pretty contrived to me and this in particular so oh yeah and this also makes it seem like they're being like look it's not Lester's fault she's coming on to him and it's like she's a you're child. the adult you're the adult that's the theme of this movie is just me screaming at people Uh, you're the adult act like it and and let me be clear here like all movies are contrived to some extent because they exist and we had to artificially make them but like this felt every bit false and artificial and maybe that's the whole point is that suburban life in america these days is artificial but but like you can display that with characters that I find interesting and sympathetic and engaging. So instead he just goes on, you want to hear a secret that we might can cut. Yes. So while I watched this movie, I was really bored. So I was watching it on one of my computer monitors and playing crusader Kings on the other. Oh my God. That's perfect. (laughs) And let me tell you the storyline of my fictional dynasty was a lot more interesting. Oh, I'm sure. I'm so sure. But I was also, like, pausing and taking notes. Oh, so I yeah, did pay attention, yeah. but I was also, like... I watched it on Pluto, and so there were ad breaks, and that's where I wrote my notes. Because I was not about to spend money on this. <laughs> I did spend money on this. Oh, I'm so sorry. But I rented it and didn't buy it, even though there was, like, less than a dollar difference in the two, because I was like, this will not be on my Amazon queue. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, that whole like contrived situation with Angela and him is what touches off the like final form of his midlife crisis, which is him rooting around to like lift some weights and doing this weird like naked weightlifting thing. Ricky taking a video of it, which is also weird. Creepy. I 
I just, I don't understand what's going on at this point. Like, it is so unhinged. There's also a shot of Ricky's room, and it's just a wall of videotapes. And I have an all caps. That is too many videotapes. Uh, it's at least too, too many. Um. <laughs> but yeah, he like takes off his shirt so he can watch himself lift weights in the reflection of the window. And I was like, that's not like. Don't. I don't understand. And I mean, he goes out jogging with the gyms the next morning. And they kick his ass. They, Of course they do, because they actually jog consistently. I also love that they're just like, oh, hey, Lester. Yeah, jog with <laughs> I love the gyms. They're so welcoming. But this is, I, I mean, you get a, additional opportunities to develop Ricky's character, too, because he is now Lester's drug dealer. Um, so they have this wonderful conversation about clean piss and all of that. Leave the children out of this. It's, ooh, it's, it's not, it's not good. Um, so, do we want to talk about Carolyn for a little bit and her? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Carolyn. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for bearing with us. This this movie's kind of like all over the place. So we're, t- yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna be all over the place. I and again, like the chronology of this movie, like doesn't matter. They, they work at kind of like playing these scenes off one another, but I personally didn't feel like it elevated it too much. Like you could have cut between them pretty arbitrarily. Um, well, I mean, it could have been worse. I'll, I'll put it that way, but I, I, I just feel so apathetic. I'd really do. But Carolyn goes to lunch with uh buddy came where it comes out that he's basically divorcing. And of course they end up in a motel together. Can I say I love her line at that lunch where he's like tells her that like his wife is leaving her and she goes, but you guys look so happy at the event. His wife looked bored out of her mind. Like they did not look like a happy And Carolyn, you were doing the same goddamn thing. I know. And that's the joke. (laughs) And also it's like Carolyn probably picked up on that, but has to be like the, oh, but you seem so happy. Like continuing the facade. So Anyway, they, they of course, uh, she has this wonderful line about, uh, what is it, a royal monarch? Anyway, they play on the Buddy buddy Kane, the king of real estate thing while he is, you know, they're copulating. Doing it. Um, <laughs> I Yeah, that was actually, like, really, that was, yeah, that was really funny. funny. I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's, like, something, something the king or something your majesty. Um but the whole thing with him is the like appearance of success, which of course Carolyn buys into. Like she very much has the same philosophy. And I think, you know, for her being married to Lester, who seems to have no drive, no ambition, no personality, uh, seeing someone who it's like also cares about those things as like, you know, materialistic as they may be, I think is like a big draw for her. Of course, it then like bites her in the ass later because she and uh i keep forgetting the character's name buddy are going through the drive-through of the burger joint that lester now works at because he has quit his corporate job and is blackmailing them for a year's worth of salary and benefits so not gonna lie until why not take the year off well because he he made that offhand comment earlier about how his happiest summer was not having to do anything and he just got laid a lot and flipped burgers and so he is literally regressing to his teenage years. You're right. You're right. That's why. And anyway, he catches Carolyn and Buddy as they come through the drive-thru. 
And then, of course, Buddy's whole thing is like, well, I can't have this get out because of the appearance of success. And so he breaks it off with Carolyn. Well, of see, she's like, yeah, of I course. thought that was more he felt for Carolyn's benefit to avoid the expensive divorce. I didn't oh, think I it was, was for him. Oh, he does say something about the expensive divorce. I thought he was talking about his own, though. Oh, I thought he was talking about hers. Anyway, it's both, I You're guess. You're probably right, because I was probably a little bit distracted by Christopher <laughs> <Kings>. <laughs> Which is fine, but that also, this just goes back to the more that we talk about this, the more I wanted a movie about Carolyn. Because she actually has interesting arcs and, like, she seems to do more. Well, and she's also the subject of other people's decisions in a very material way. Because it's like Buddy who's making that decision to break it off for her sake. And like this is much more of a like repressed mid-century, like, I don't know, I, it, more interesting, to, way more interesting to me. I just also think she's just a more engaging character. Like she's she's got more personality and... Like, and yeah, like you have her being the subject of other people's decisions, but also like trying her, trying to do stuff. Um, whereas you have Lester just again, regressing to his teenage years. And also just like, like in like the bit where he quits his job and he's like walking out, there's like, he does little like fist pump. And I, it was a moment where I was like that plus the score is like the movie wants me to cheer for him. And I fucking refuse. Well, and I was on board with him blackmailing them until he until the fabricated like sexual assault slash harassment thing came up that was too far i was that like was yeah take corporate far. america for all their worth but not now <laughs> but like don't yeah the implications of that were just horrible agreed agreed and like yeah that's a moment too where i was like for a moment you had me and then you completely lost me and i just like there's nothing about his character that makes me want to cheer because like he's He's disproportionately mean to people for the quote unquote wrongs that have been done to him. And like, honestly, like I don't, it doesn't feel like he was re- he's really been wronged. Like you're in a shitty marriage, get divorced. You don't like your job, change it. Quit. Yeah. And like, I understand like we're saying if you don't like your job, quit. Like that's not always an option for people. But like, for I mean, Lester, he does quit. 100% is. Right. Well, and he, he quits again and like does that. And I will say he does, he is getting a year's worth of salary and benefits, but like Carolyn's like, well, what are we going to like now? I'm the sole breadwinner in a job that you were like, won't support me. And like, again, if he wanted to quit his job, support Carolyn, help make her real estate a thing. And then like, yeah, I just, all of his decisions are so selfish. And then there's him yelling at his daughter being like, you have to eat dinner with us. And it's like, why would she want to eat dinner with you two? You're in the middle of a huge argument. And she tried to leave. And then at one point he tells her that she's turning into a, a something, something bitch like her mother. And I was like, no wonder your kid hates you. Like you're needlessly mean. And then Carolyn tries to come up and have a talk about how you can't rely on anybody, anybody but yourself. And then slaps her daughter for being like, what? Like, this is, I just... I, that, yeah, like, the, the slap made no sense. Because at first, I kind of liked that thing. Because I was like, oh, we're getting such a peek into how Carolyn feels so alone. When she's being like, you can't rely on anyone but yourself. But then, yeah, like, the escalation, I was like, why? Like, that was, it was so unneeded. Yeah, it's, and I think even in that dinner, there were just weird jumps in energy. And, like, maybe you were supposed to feel unhinged, 
Yeah, and then he gets violent, and it's like, it felt like the movie wanted to be, me to be like, he's standing up for himself, and it's like, no, he just got, like, really violent. Like, that's not standing... Being an asshole isn't standing up for yourself. Correct. Correct. So I think the last scene of that day that is really worth mentioning is the interaction between Ricky and Jane in his room while they're just, you know, hanging out mostly naked and talking about what happened to Ricky and about how Jane finds her father creepy and makes some offhanded quote unquote joke about somebody needing to put him out of his misery. It's the like full scene around the bit at the beginning. Yeah. Which I I don't realize why we didn't we didn't need that rehash. We like didn't. it's because the film wanted to be clever where they're like, you're gonna think that Ricky killed him for Jane, but no. And I was like, I don't care. You want a twist? Watch the sixth sense. Seriously though. Seriously, because we saw this twist coming from a mile away after this last scene. This movie was so predictable. Because <sighs> it's it's Fitz, Colonel Fitz. We get a scene of him again being like beating up his kid and being worried that his son is gay because he went over to sell weed and roll a joint with Lester, but there was this like visual gag where it looked like he was going down on Lester instead, which I when they say dark comedy, I see the attempt at comedy, but this is just not like that's very farcical for what you're trying to go for in this film. But the the thing that is ridiculous to me is then Fitz thinks it's appropriate to go over and look for emotional and physical support from Lester because he is so horribly repressed. Again, hate this characterization. Fucking A. How did you think that this was a character that needed to be written or rehashed or talked about or just like, no. This scene drove me nuts because it was like, one, it has to be in the rain. Oh my God, like, you're right. <laughs> be more melodramatic, please. This this scene felt like a parody of itself because like the garage door comes up and then you have Lester who's shirtless because he's been working out because Angela, once he overheard her say like, oh, your dad would be hot if he worked out. And then you have, I don't even remember Ricky's dad's name. Is it? It's Colonel, the Colonel. Yeah, Frank Fitz. Also, what kind of name is that? Colonel Frank Fitz. It is the most stereotypical name you could think for a colonel like that. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, I think that's the point. I think that's the point. Uh, But he like walks up and all of Lester's lines are like, oh, no, you're wet. We should get you out of those clothes. Like they're so deadpan. And it sounds like a parody of itself. Being like, and and there's so many of them. There's not just one innocuous innuendo line. There's like seven all in a row said so deadpan and so slowly and it drags. And I like legitimately, I was like, is this an SNL skit? Like also just like I, the Colonel, like that character doesn't like, we never even really need to see that character. Like I, he's like too big of a character and too small of a character at the same time. He's too flat. If we were going to see him, we needed more. And like even uh, Ricky's mom, she's in there. We haven't really talked about her, but like she is, she's not given anything to work on other than the fact that she is abused by her husband, presumably. Right. Which honestly, I kind of like, I'm like, just don't have her in there and just have the Colonel be like a single father. Like, you know what I mean? Like you didn't need her. No, not at all. She's very superfluous. And like, ugh. so we're at the night. Um, finally, where he uh, is going to die. He tells us about this. Um, 
Actually, I think all of the things we just discussed happened during that night. But anyway, that's fine. Um, so uh, uh, Angela, of course, is back over. They have this stilted as fuck conversation about don't fuck my dad. First off, hold on. There, I want to back up a little bit there. There's a bit where Jane tells her dad, I haven't asked Angela over in a while because you're fucking creepy to her. Can you not be? And I think that's when he calls her a bitch. Like he, his reaction to that. And I was like, your daughter, your teenage daughter, just said, I haven't been inviting my best friend over because you're being creepy and your response is, you're a bitch. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, we know, but I'm still going to ask. It's, again, he's regressing to his teenage self and I hate it. And it is not good. But yes, we do have the very stilted conversation of like, don't fuck my dad. Like, I'm sorry. It's so weirdly written. No one talks like that. And I, I, I don't know why, but there just aren't energy levels in that scene. Like they go, they're, they're stepwise. Like you go really high, really low. Like I, Thora Birch doesn't ever have any energy in this, and she's she's a very good actress. So like I know it was direction and writing for her, but like Jane, I just I would love to see like a spark of something from Jane. Instead, we get this barf-worthy scene between Angela and Lester where they begin actually moving towards physical intimacy. I hate this scene so much for so many reasons. Again, it's in response to Ricky has come and asked Jane to run away with him. And then Angela, for once, actually is like a voice. She's like the one person who's the voice of reason at any point in this movie being like, you can't do that. Like, think this through and then Ricky's response is like you're not her friend you're just afraid that you're boring and normal with the implication being unlike me and Jane because we're not like other girls or Jane at least is not like other girls and I'm like you're all boring and normal like also no no none none of them are normal but they're boring no you're right (laughs) we're normal you're right you're right um, but like, and then of course, Angela is like, well, at least I'm not ugly. She falls back on that kind of old defense. Um, and then I think that's the moment where she decides like, well, then I'm actually going to fuck your dad. Um, which again, I don't like that this puts it as if it's like on Angela and it's her choice. Like, yeah, I will say that it is in some ways extremely tragic for that character that that is where, she is but this looking isn't for framed validation. as her story. It's not. It's about Lester. Yeah, it's the way that it's framed. I agree with you. If we frame it more of like, isn't it so sad that this is like, that Angela feels like she has to seek the validation this way, mm-hmm. then like, I'm, I still don't like it, but I'm more on board. But like, it, this is all framed as poor Lester. Like the whole movie is, and... I don't buy that. Like the way they frame his stopping the encounter once he realizes that Angela has not slept with anyone else is like this bothered me. So are, are much. we supposed to also like cheer for you for not wanting to ruin this poor teenager's life? Like the fact it got to this point is already a huge issue. And now yes. it's better that you're now being the dad and like cooking her a meal after like I just that bothered me so Ugh. much because the implication is 
if Angela had slept with other people, it would have been okay. Like the fact that she was a virgin is what stopped him. And I'm like, it should not, like you said, it should never have gotten this far. This would always have been wrong, regardless of Angela's sexual history. Correct. Correct. So fortunately it stops. And I I did, again, I did really, if it were from, to reiterate from Angela's perspective, I felt heartbroken for her in this moment because there she's going through a bunch of shit and we don't like for whatever reason once she has some food and goes to the bathroom and she's like depicted as being okay like i'm confused Uh, yeah i was like somebody please check up on angela um but yeah you have the scene where he like makes her some food and they're talking a lot more like appropriately and that's when he asks her about jane and i'm like Cool. So you've alienated yourself from your daughter so much that you like now have to ask her friends how she's doing. Because, again, I would like to reiterate that, like, he is very responsible for how bad his relationship is with his daughter. So leading up to this moment, to change gears slightly, we have had scenes with Carolyn, like, kind of taking a page out of Buddy's book and buying a handgun, shooting a handgun, like, not being the victim there are people in this world who are responsible gun owners. Carolyn is not one of them, or I don't think she doesn't no, strike me. No, you just have it out on the car seat, just chilling, presumably loaded. Like, anyway, it's not great. No, but she's listening to like this, like, quote unquote, self-help tape, which honestly sounds like a scam because it's like, stop being the victim of your own life and like, do something about it, which it's very Carolyn, though. I am like, this would be the kind of thing that she would like. But you lose me when you go all the way to having a gun that is heavily implied you're going to hold up your husband with. Oh, yeah, of course. No, no, no. I want to be clear. I'm not supporting Carolyn. I'm saying the fact that that is what she's listening to is very in keeping with the character we have been shown. <laughs> I want to make that very clear. I don't support her. I think she also <laughs> makes terrible choices and is a bad person. And, like, I think both her and Lester need to fucking get it together at mm-hmm. least until Jane goes off to college. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But for whatever reason, after that interaction with Angela, Lester is somewhat content looking at an old photo. And uh, before we get to this point, I would like to just have a quick warning that we're about to discuss uh, graphic murder. So proceed with caution. He has his brains blown out by an unshown uh, gunman. I was so mad at the movie because I was like, they're trying to be all mysterious and make us be like, which of our three possible people did this? Was it Ricky? Was it Ricky's dad? Or was it Carolyn? This is not a whodunit. It's not a whodunit. Surprise, it's Ricky's dad. Um, I wasn't surprised, actually, because I... Surprise, it's the least well-developed character of those three. Yeah, no, because, of course, we had such a horrible trope. Of course, we had to also add murderer to his billing, like... Well, and we've already established that, like, that is the most violent character. He has guns, and then, like, he and Lester had, like, an awkward rejection moment. So, like, again, like, I feel like the movie was trying to be, like, surprise, and I was like, I was not. And then we have this... I hated the way Carolyn reacted. I hated it. Like, I understand being numb and in shock, but this weird, like, oh my God, I miss him now, sort of like, no, this is not it. Just no. 
I'm a little torn on it because, like, I get it. Also, Carolyn was in a really bad state, and it's like, it it's you know seems with the scenes leading up to that that at the very least she's thinking about threatening him with the gun if not doing this herself and then maybe being confronted by with the fact that it actually happened there's some a bit of her that's like oh god this is what i was going to do well see i agree but more in generality and about her not about her seeming to miss lester agreed that's Although- the part that lost me Although the her flinging the closet doors open and hugging all of his jackets was one of the only shots I liked. (laughs) I, I liked, I liked the shot, but I was like, this is a little much. Seriously. Well, yeah. And you know what makes me mad? Jane and Ricky's reactions. Well, no, no, no. Jane's reactions a lot better. Ricky's a fucking creeper again. He's like finding the beauty in it. Jane, honey, I know you and Angela have a tough relationship, but like, listen to her. She, she was the smartest person in the movie in that moment when she told you not to run away with this creep who you don't know. Yeah. And then of course, the part that makes me the most mad is we, what we have in a vacuum, a beautiful end of life, like montage in a different movie, I would have fucking ate this up. But at the end of this film, it's horrible. He's like, the things that flash in front of your eyes, they say it's this, but this is all the things that I saw as I was dying. And it's like, you got shot in the back of the head. You didn't know you were dying. So why were you like, it doesn't compute. Well, it was the last death throes of all of his neurons firing that made him feel this way. But it's, again, like I said, in a vacuum, loved the montage. At the end of a different film, would have been amazing. At the end of this because film... Because I don't care we, about this character. Well, and he never gave any indication that he cared about, quote-unquote, the beauty in the world. Like, he cared about his teenage horniness with this teenage girl who is a friend of his daughter's. Like, don't try to make this bigger than it was. Yeah, I do feel like the movie tried to go really hard on like, yeah, the beauty in the world and all of that. And I was like, I all I got was like, man, there's a lot of creepers out there. Yeah. So I just it it just it made me mad that, again, by itself, it was pretty. And then in the context, it was shit. I just there was not enough pretty moments to like. Again, like I'm still like there were a couple pretty shots and pretty moments, but like it just wasn't. I expected so much more visually. Yeah, not just rose petals and a. uh, Like I think Sixth Sense is a prettier movie. I think its themes are better. That's for sure. I think it's I think its themes are better. I think its acting's better. I think its script is better. I I thought it was prettier too. Like in that one, you have the whole thing with like the visual reds, which they kind of do with the red door of the house when Carolyn pulls up. But then again, I was like, you, we've never focused on this in any other way. Like, I don't know. That's my pitch for the sixth sense. Go listen to that episode. It's delightful. It's so much better than this. So, uh, lists. Oh God. I know exactly where it's going. And yeah. This movie was like creepy, but also so boring. I honestly, the fact that it's so boring is like its biggest sin to me. Well, and I think up there in sins is the fact that there is no, I, I didn't find even Angela to an extent I had trouble sympathizing with because of the lack of development. Same. It, her character was like, I would say that like some of these characters were like, like, 
interesting to me. Like Angela and Carolyn, I was like, I want to know more about these characters. Like they're the most interesting characters. I didn't like them. Yeah. So I, I didn't find, except for the gyms who appeared, like you said, in a grand total of 45 seconds of this movie. Only people I liked. No sympathy for these folks. And that just makes it so hard. So I know where I want to put it if you want me to go, but I'm happy to let yeah, you think Yeah, you go. And I think I know where I want to put it. So this is the easiest time I've had slotting a movie in um, of the last probably 15 to 20. Um, it's my number 72. Um, like... Wow. I'm sorry. It's I struggled to put it above Cavalcade. And while I think Cavalcade had a lot of missed opportunities and was hollow, there were at least characters there that felt more formed <laughs> and that you could actually, you know, latch onto in any sort of way and see an arc happen and like care about, even if it was just a little bit, and even if it was still creaky and poorly paced. Like American Beauty is a similar version of that for me where it is creaky. Like 20 some odd years later, it felt ancient. It felt dated for 1999. Like looking, just looking at other stuff that came out that year, I was like, man, this film feels dated compared to those. Yeah. And like, maybe you could make an argument that it should go maybe in like the mid sixties, which as in uh, the rankings on the list, mid sixties. But I just, I have no redeeming anything to give about this film except maybe thomas newman but even then like i'm sorry i while i love his work it's not enough yeah wow i was not expecting that okay fuck Uh, this movie (laughs) wow uh so i'm slotting it in at 57 you can't see my face right now, but I was basically like <laughs> Lester bad. watching Angela during the thing. A mouth wide Ew, fucking don't open. Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> Shocked. What? How? <laughs> That's so high. Putting... <laughs> I'll read you what I have under it. So I really didn't like it. It wasn't nonsensical. So a lot of the stuff I have below it are things that like hit a point where I was like, this is nonsensical. Okay. Um, I, I would agree where like, it felt, it felt like a movie that wanted to tackle some deep things, but didn't know how to do it in depth or in any sort of nuanced or new way. Um, like I said, this felt very much to me like a film you would see in like the late sixties, early seventies and not in a good way. Cause I do love films from that era. Um, it just felt dated um i there's a book uh by dana schwartz called uh the white man's guide to white male writers of the western canon that's like a satire on um you know all the writers that you're always told are like the important ones um and that you have like you know those lit bros that'll be like oh well like i've read infinite just like five times or whatever uh so this book's a satire i was like the movie american beauty felt like a non-satire version of that book <laughs> um, I read Ian a segment of it actually before we started recording and he agreed. So 57, that puts it right after The Godfather Part 2, <laughs> which I didn't like and I didn't enjoy. I think it's got a lot of the same themes of just like these uh, unmoored men who then make their problems everybody else's uh, and main characters that I am like, I have no sympathy for you and 
movies where most of the characters I'm like, I don't like anybody and I have no sympathy. I mean, I feel like the Godfather part two at least had a little bit more cohesion. Um, I actually, one of my critiques of it was I think that it didn't also didn't know who its main character was and what story it was trying to tell, but I, it was prettier and technically more impressive. And I do think the performances were better. Yeah. 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 Um, and the writing was a little bit better. Like you had it, people sounded like real people kind of <laughs> sometimes. Um, and then it's just above Braveheart because I was slightly less bored than I was while watching Braveheart, but I didn't have any historical stuff to Google while I was watching it, which was how I passed my time with Braveheart. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, that's the, when we start getting into the late fifties in my list, that's the point where it just starts getting into stuff where I'm like, this is just not fun to watch. Although granted, there are some movies I have ranked below it that I, do enjoy more mostly because I hay watch them a little bit. Um, so what I have below it, just for your reference, Ian, is Braveheart, Gentleman's Agreement, which Gentleman's Agreement probably actually needs to come up my list a little bit. Um, an American in Paris, You Can't Take It With You, Around the World in 80 Days, My Fair Lady, Gigi, The Greatest Show on Earth, Chariots of Fire, Going My Way, All the King's Men, Summerone, The Great Sigfeld, Cavalcade, and Broadway Melody. I think going my way doesn't deserve to be that low, but that's okay. I did not enjoy going my way, and I was very mad because I do like Bing Crosby, and I was like, this did him. <laughs> oh. That movie was just so long, and there were sequences where I was like, please cut this. Also, the songs are so bad. <laughs> I mean, yes, but was it worse than American Beauty? I don't know. We'll figure out once we reorder. According to my list, yes. <laughs> I will tell you right now, I'm never watching either of the movies, those movies again. Yeah, so. that's fair. This was actually the second time I watched American Beauty, and I was a much less well-informed uh, movie watcher when I saw it the first time, and I also was like, what was the point of this movie then? Um, now I'm also like, what is the point of this movie, but I'm angry about it. Um <laughs> <laughs> I just so many I love that our podcast has just made you an angrier human being my work is done well um, it's you know there's it, it's just you can do things well and I've seen things done well and to be completely honest I don't see an excuse for not making at least an average movie that wins best picture here's the thing with American like I went into this with like not high expectations, but higher expectations, at least as far as the visuals were concerned, because this was the first time I had watched it. And I just know a lot of people were like, yeah, it's super cringy, but like it is well constructed and the, it's visually very good. And then watching it, I was like, I'm going to disagree a little bit. I think visually, I don't think it's bad visually. I just think it's average visually. I think it's bad. I hated the cinematography. It felt, it was, it was filmed like almost like a noir and I don't know, it just, it didn't feel like it aided the actual movie in any way. There were some nice shot compositions that I liked, but I also just like... Yeah, I think it was the lighting more for me that I really disliked. I was fine with it, except for I wanted them to punch it up in the fantasy sequences. Because, like, I understand they were trying to look real, real drab. And boring and suburban. Yeah. But that does not always make for interesting viewing. No. It would have been interesting to me if they had done this like soft, pretty lighting to juxtapose the actual yeah. dialogue. Which which that they did like a little bit of. They kind of did it, but like not enough. Yeah. 
Yeah. So anyway, it's American Beauty. We didn't really like this one. If you couldn't tell from the very first like you sentence really I said, hated it. <laughs> man, I was not ex- I was not expecting that. I will say there are movies I have ranked lower on my list than American Beauty that I am more likely to watch mm. again. So anyway, I think next time we are doing Gladiator, the two thousand Gladiator, film. or I that would be our next canon episode. I think we've talked about doing like some like a fun one as a treat to ourselves after this one, doing like a special fun episode. Um, and then we're also probably due for list reorder, unless you want to wait until the end of the early two thousands to do another list reorder. Well, we'll figure it out. There will be another episode. I don't know which it's going to be. <laughs> But in the meantime, uh, would love to hear other opinions on American Beauty. Um, I would also love to hear from people who watched it when it came out. Yeah. And like, has your opinion on it changed? If so, how? Um, because like I said, like this was the first time I watched it. So I'm definitely coming from it in like, you know, a very like modern today lens. And I know that like at the time it was super well reviewed. So I'm curious about that. So yeah, definitely uh, reach us out, uh, reach out to us on our socials. We're at Bets Pictures Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and of course, for anything longer form, uh, we're at Best Pictures Podcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. Uh, as Maggie always usually says, uh, rate, subscribe, review, and especially review for us. Love to give folks an opportunity to find this content if that's what they're interested in. So um, we appreciate your support. Um, and for everyone who made it to the end of this episode, we appreciate you. Because <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> uh, but yeah, see you next time.